is an Odyssey original. This is KX In Depth. I'm Rob Arch. I'm Charles Feldman. Writers in Hollywood studios hope to turn the page and author a deal to end the strike. We'll go in depth into whether that would actually bring back writers if the actors are still out. And we'll look into what California can teach Hawaii when it comes to fighting big wildfires. And Fernando Valenzuela being honored by the Dodgers, having his number retired. We'll go in-depth into how Fernando Mania never really died. We start, though, with the negotiation talks in Hollywood between writers in the studios. Trey Lovell is an L.A.-based entertainment attorney. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So we heard yesterday uh, something that uh, some of us anyway didn't really think about too much, I think. And that was that an awful lot of writers have the position that even if their union, the the Writers Guild, uh, settles at some point with the uh, studios, that if sag after the actors are still out, they have no intention of going back to work. If that were to happen, then things would still pretty much be at a standstill, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, although, you know, the union would be, would be governing that. And, and if the union is going to want to make a deal, they would certainly want the, the, the union ship to go along with it. Um, but you know, there's a lot of solidarity here. This is the, the most significant entertainment strike in probably in history. There's a lot at stake. And so each union wants to take full advantage of what it can to, to, to get what they want, um, and, and act in concert. So, um, if, if that were to happen, it would, you know, it would be, very, very problematic, um, you know, and, and would be difficult to even get a deal done because there, there, there's so many different moving parts, um, you know. So, I, you know, I, I don't know if the, if the unions would allow that, um, even though the solidarity is there, because if, if one union can get a deal, they're going to go for it. So uh, are the studios looking at the, at least for right now, the solidarity between the creative community uh, and the different unions there? Are they going to wind up, if, if they can't siphon off writers and separate them from actors, uh, do they have to face the prospect of bending a bit more than they had originally hoped they would have to? I, you know, I think they will. You know, there's a lot of crossover with what the, 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 the two unions want. Um, you know, the, in terms of economics, both sides want increased base pay, minimum rates. They want more revenue from streaming. They want regulation uh, and uh, of artificial intelligence. Um, and so uh, how each side handles that is, is going to be very important. And if they act in solidarity, the, the production companies in the studios are going to have to to deal with them, uh, you know, at, 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 as, as one big one big group. Um, but you know the, the the unions need need to certainly as they negotiate respectively um, remember that whatever they negotiate whatever terms are being forwarded and furthered with respect to compensation AI it is going to parlay into negotiations with the other respective union so in that way they always kind of have to be thinking about the brotherhood of, of the other union. One of the things that we understand is an issue, a key issue, maybe even more than AI and maybe even more than money, is the number of writers that will have to be present in the so-called writer's room uh, for any particular production, that the writers want a set number, the uh, studios don't want that. Um, and I can see how people can side with either point. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the unions are obviously trying to protect their interests and want to make sure that their membership ha- have jobs. 
On the other hand, the studios, uh, you know, they have a point, too, don't they, that, you know, it's their money, and if they don't need to have, say, 10 writers and they can do it with five, why pay for the extra five? You know, they do. You know, the whole production model has changed with, with streaming and these other platforms. You know, the, the the episodic season for TV is is getting much less. It used to be 21 uh, episodes of seasons. Now we're down to eight to 10 on streaming. And so there's there's a lot less work per show and the writers are really getting hit with that. Um, so because of that, they're really working hard on trying to have minimum weeks that they'll they'll be working there. As well in the writing rooms, the conditions for working have gotten gotten much have gotten worse, uh, much more informal, not enough support. So yeah, so the writers are really focused on the working conditions, um, you know, which parlays into into you know any type of profession. You want to be able to be comfortable and be able to have the environment that allows you to to do the best work. Um, I just don't think the studios are really given a whole lot on that issue if they kind of go more with the writers, um, because it's, it they can do it in such a way where where the economics will fall in, but but the writers will have the best conditions to, to produce the best product. All right, uh, Trey Lovell, thank you so much. LA-based entertainment attorney. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Still ahead, the Dodgers are honoring Fernando Valenzuela. We'll get into how he became such an L.A. icon. Right now, though, at least 55 people have been killed in those devastating fires in Maui. There have been criticisms about a lack of warnings or that they came way too late. Now, that's something that in the past has even happened here in California, where, of course, we have a long history of wildfires. Uh, Lafina Davis lost her home in a massive fire that uh, swept through Lahaina. Also with us is Chris Dykus, who's a professor of wildland fire and fuels management with Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Thank you both for being with us. Uh, Lafina, let me start with you. And and considering your loss, uh, we really do thank you deeply for taking the time to talk with us. Um, Can you tell us about this issue of warnings? Were there any? Um, First, I want to just thank you for the opportunity and reaching out to me. Um, I felt it was really important to have a broader audience so that they can have an understanding of what's really going on on the ground in Lahaina. We're an extremely... Um, isolated area of Maui. Um, the short answer, no, there was no warning. Um, the fire moved extremely fast. There were hurricane winds, gusts up to 80 miles an hour. Um, Lahaina itself is completely isolated. They're limited with their fire department and police department. Um, you know, shortly after, about an hour after the fire broke out, we lost all phone communications. Initially, I was, you know, under the impression that there was no evacuation at all. Um, I've, I've learned a bit of new information where, where I do have a little bit different perspective on that now. But let me ask you something. I, I was under the impression that after, I think it was a, a tsunami uh, many years ago, uh, that Hawaii on all the islands had set up a fairly elaborate system of sirens to go off to warn people of, of things like tsunamis or fires. Did no sirens go off? No sirens went off. The only um, alert that we had was about 8 p.m. It came over the radio waves. And it was very brief. All right. Uh, Chris uh, Dykus, uh, what would you recommend to officials in Hawaii? Uh, What systems would you recommend they put in place to keep that 
from happening again. Uh, what kind of warning systems are needed, especially when we're dealing with some very remote areas and not everybody is connected in the way that say they would be in, in parts of California. But even in California, as you're well aware, there are some isolated areas where communication doesn't work the same way it does as you get closer to like Southern California. Well, unfortunately, it's the same thing I've seen played out in California, uh, Australia, uh, Europe. It's just this lack of information and the infrastructure is just not there or it fails at the, the absolute worst time to reach the people that need it most at hand. So, you know, one of the things that we do in terms of communication is try to have like, you know, kind of a push out uh, via cell phones or other things. But what, what do you do when the communications towers burn down? Uh, you know, what do you do when you only have people are having they're having to opt in? Well, given the tourist and the option of opting in, it's a really difficult sell. So the things that we've certainly learned in California is to have multiple um, kind of redundant systems uh, where, you know, you try to get the information out by a variety of ways uh, for folks because it's just absolutely pandemonium. And I've lived through uh, evacuations myself. Um, but, you know, you have a plan. But as uh, Mike Tyson, uh, the boxer, once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Hmm. And so having a backup plan. And so one of the things that we've certainly started learning is a lot of times you just can't get out, uh, especially with a bad road infrastructure. So we're developing things like temporary safe refuge areas that if something breaks out, here is where you go. If you want to get out, that's awesome. But if you can't, this is where you need to go. Lafina, if I can ask you for a second uh, to uh, and, and feel free to talk, by the way, with with Chris, because he's the expert on this. Were there things in terms of of firefighting equipment, uh, personnel, that sort of thing that you think were, were lacking? And, and perhaps you have a question for Chris as an expert on, on what maybe can be done differently going forward in Hawaii or certainly in Maui. Uh, the response from the Maui Fire Department is phenomenal and top-notch. Um, you know, I know they, they are recruiting. Um, we need more firefighters on Maui, and that's for certain, especially in remote areas like Lahaina. Um, I can't speak to the equipment. I do know that at some point without electricity, we didn't have pumps for the water for the firefighters to have water available to them. Um Chris, is, Chris is there? Let me let me ask you, Chris. Is there a solution to what she just mentioned? Well, having redundant systems and trying to protect the infrastructure that's going to run these very things. Um, so many times when the fires start, you know, we all rely on the fire service, these brave men and women that are putting their lives at risk, but they can't be at all places at all times. And so it's it's a really difficult situation. And so in having these backup systems um, that were actually part of and mentioned in uh, Maui County's uh, hazard mitigation plan. I mean, everything we see, the breakdowns, there was warnings there. But we experts, you know, in the fire service and others were, were frankly, we're really not good at publicizing the information we got out there and getting it to the people that need it the most. Uh, Lafina, uh, let me ask you, uh, as you lost your home, do you have the resources or the insurance resources to rebuild? Um, so I just want to explain a little bit. I, I lived in a multi-generational home. Um, I was not the owner of the actual home. I contributed to the rent. So in short, no, I, I am not on that insurance plan. I will not be able to recover any of my, any of my belongings. Um, I'm completely displaced. Um, you know, maybe I'll get some FEMA money to help me, but 
I, I'm starting over from scratch, from, from the ground up at 50 years old. Um, I, I may not even have employment at this time. Um, because you, employer, you worked because you worked in a place that burned down? Um, yeah. In the hospitality industry in mm. West Maui is, you know, it's not active right now because of the, the devastation. Um, the, so, yeah, you know, me and hundreds of people are in the same situation. All right. Uh, Lafina, th- th- uh, thank you so much for sharing your personal part of your story with us, which is the impetus to uh, make sure that people know there are ways that you can help. And people in Maui, as you just heard Lafina Davis explain, are going to need an awful lot of help because they don't have the resources at this point. There are ways you can help. You can find that on our website at knxnews.com. Right now, though, Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel in the Hunter Biden investigation. This comes after that uh, plea deal fell apart uh, very recently. And as the Justice Department has two cases against former President Trump, Rachel Fizet is back with us. She's an L.A.-based defense attorney and legal analyst. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So uh, James Comer has already come out and said that uh, appointing uh, David Weiss, who had been leading the investigation of Hunter Biden as a special counsel, is just another move to uh, to help the Biden family carry out a cover up, which is an odd thing to hear uh, from the standpoint of David Weiss was appointed by former President Trump. And is James Comer accusing former President Trump of appointing someone to an investigation that is covering up Biden family crimes? What do you make of that? And and, and James Comer, not the only one of, of some of these Republicans coming out all of a sudden very against David Weiss being the special counsel. What is their reasoning? The reasoning is that David Weiss was part of the plea agreement that would have put Hunter Biden on probation for two years that likely would have ended the case. And so they're thinking David Weiss is soft on Hunter Biden. It is an unusual move coming out of the Republican Party, given that the appointment of the special counsel, if you are in the Hunter Biden camp, is very bad news. It looks like they are going to continue this case. They are putting more effort into continuing the investigation and taking this to trial. So this is not what was predicted even after the plea agreement fell apart a couple weeks ago. So here we end up with a situation that is unprecedented in American politics, but I'm guessing also Uh, for the American legal system in that you're going to have, uh, provided that Mr. Trump becomes his party's nominee, uh, and even if he doesn't, he's still running and is is considered the the most prominent person as of now running for his party's nomination for president, you're going to end up, we are ending up up with a situation where one person, uh, Trump, is under several different criminal indictments uh, and still being investigated by one special prosecutor. And on the other hand, Joe Biden, who definitely is running for president again, now has his own son being investigated by a special prosecutor. Legally, how could all of that, what I just mentioned, that kind of mix of politics and law, how could that not somehow interfere with the legal process? This all seems a bit like a circus when you put it that way. Uh, And you're being diplomatic, I think. (laughs) I think what 
part of the appointment of the special counsel here as to Hunter Biden is Merrick Garland saying, look, I don't want it to seem like we are garnering favor for one political party over the next um, because we have these ongoing special counsel Trump investigations and now Trump indictment. So I think what the point was, if I were to read into it from a political standpoint, was to make everything look fair. But as you just laid out, it may make everything look like a giant circus act as the American public tries to figure out which way they are going to vote in next year's election. The uh, Republican side is uh, accusing all the indictments against former President Trump as being a cover up to to cover up Hunter Biden and, and Joe Biden. Well, some of the Democratic side are are saying that the uh, these investigations into Hunter Biden, these accusations and allegations against him and his father, the president, are just a way to cover up and distract from the indictments of former President Trump. So you got both sides playing this political game, um, and I think you briefly touched on it, but this is really what's a good word I can use? A mess. <laughs> Chaos. Now you're now you're being diplomatic. I'm being right? diplomatic. Everyone's being diplomatic. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, we have to keep it clean here. Yeah, that's on the true. Air. That's true. Okay. So, <laughs> um, I think it's important to distinguish what is being charged in each case. And as to Trump, it is directly related to the political process, at, and it is directly related to him in an election and an abuse of power in the highest office of our country. As to Hunter Biden, it looks a lot like tax evasion and a gun charge uh, for being an addict, addict while owning a gun. And frankly, while there's been a lot of talk about Joe Biden being involved, there's been no evidence that anyone has been able to produce that the public has seen that Joe Biden is directly involved in any of Hunter Biden's crimes. So frankly, they are different, but it does allow for a ton of spin and a lot of comparison when people are going to the polls next year. Well, Rachel Fizzi, thank you, as always, uh, for being with us, LA-based defense attorney and legal analyst. So she's being diplomatic. Yes. You're being, I'm uh, not going to be diplomatic. No. This entire thing is, well, I can't say. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The uh, CDC has come out with some provisional data. It shows the number of suicides across the country last year hit an all-time high. Yeah, close to 50,000 people took their own lives. That's up almost 3% from 2021. Dr. Mark Olston is a retired psychiatrist and former UCLA psychiatry professor who specialized in suicide prevention. In fact, none of his patients died by suicide in over 35 years. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So these figures uh, from the CDC, uh, especially if people haven't been paying much attention to the subject matter, uh, I think would, should, shock folks. Uh, What do you attribute this rise in suicides to? Well, there's an increase in gun-related suicides. There's also increase in in mental health issues. I I think one of the main things is emotional isolation. Um, There's lots of things that contribute to suicide and depression. One of the things I discovered, though, in my 35 years of work is that Nearly all suicidal patients feel despair at the end of their lives. They feel unpaired with reasons to live. 
uh, hopeless, helpless, worthless, purposeless, meaningless, useless. That's especially true for men. And they pair with death to take the pain away. They know that uh, suicide, death will take the pain of being unpaired with all those reasons to live. And that's especially true for men. As men get older and they age out of the workforce, when men start to feel useless, they start to feel worthless. They're not the best communicators. And there's also an increase for women. I think what contributes to that is that, you know, many families don't live close to each other. You know, a lot of women's identity is defined by their connection, especially to their families. But a lot of times their children live far away. Their children are very busy. And so I think one of the things that is a saving grace for women over men is that is that women connect emotionally better and more frequently than men do. And men have real trouble connecting. There are a lot of threads uh, that I sense, uh, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Uh, on the one hand, from the other side, there are those who say that nowadays everyone is focusing more on their own feelings. And while there's a part of that that's good, there's another part of that that's bad, because the more you focus on yourself, the more you magnify your problems within yourself. So there's that oversensitivity. On the other hand, we do seem to be living in more anxious, fear-laden times. And we do have social media, which has served to not bring us together, but to maybe kind of separate us and make us feel even more lonely. Which factor do you think has a greater influence? Are we focusing on ourselves too much? Would that help? Or are we really just feeling a lot more anxious and fear-laden because of the times that we live in? I think all of those contribute. I think we are feeling more anxious. We're feeling more powerless. And the more powerless and helpless we feel, the more uh, anxious, agitated we feel also. Uh, also, I think what's happened with the Internet is Internet plays to excitement. Younger people have been addicted to excitement, and it's away from emotional connectivity. In fact, many younger people, and for that matter, older people, don't know how to emotionally connect with each other. Because when you emotionally connect with each other, you actually trigger uh, a burst of this emotional hormone, which is called oxytocin, which people have heard about. And, and that lessens cortisol, which is the stress hormone. But if you don't know how to emotionally connect, you you don't... Uh, know what to do. And also, young, younger people are addicted to adrenaline as a way to find pleasure. And the media uh, corporations love addicting people because when you go off the crash of excitement, you have to feed the monster and you keep feeding it and you keep feeding it. And that drives up sales, but it also drives up an incredible sense of isolation. One of the uh, figures in this CDC report that is somewhat promising, I suppose, is that there seems to, at least last year or the year before, uh, there's been a, a, a drop in a suicide by some younger uh, people, and it was attributed to some degree to better uh, outreach by schools. Uh, and if that's the case, then Obviously, there are things that can be done both for younger and older people. You yourself, as we said in our lead, and had, you had in 35 what, plus years, you uh, didn't lose a patient to suicide. So what are the things that can be done for all those age groups to try to mitigate this thing? 
Well, you know, they uh, they changed the suicide hotline to 988 because that makes it easier to call. So that's been helpful. There's been more discussion about uh, mental health and suicide in schools, although many schools want to stay away from it like the plague because it scares parents. So I think the I think that is good for youth. Um <clears throat> Uh, I, I've been working with someone whose 14-year-old son killed himself five years ago, and we do presentations. He has a documentary called What I Wish My Parents Knew, and he interviews teenagers about what they never got to tell their parents because uh, their parents uh, were always triggered by those teenagers. And, and we've given out four prompts that parents can use with their teenagers, but you can use it with someone you care about. Here are the four prompts. Do it while you're doing an activity together because people can't stand uh, can't stand heart-to-heart talks unless they initiate it. First prompt is you, you say to that person, uh, at your worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life or yourself? And then as they talk, keep them talking. The second prompt is when you're feeling that way, how alone are you feeling? And you keep them talking about that. The third prompt is, Tell me about the last time you felt that, because something magical happens when someone tells you specifically about a time they felt that low, and you can see it with your eyes as they're telling you it, they re-feel it, but they're not alone. And then what you want to tell that person is, hopefully you will have earned uh, their eye contact and say, look at me, there's nothing more important to me than helping you feel less alone when you feel that awful. So the next time you're heading down that road, you need to reach out to me and do whatever you can to get my undivided attention, your mom's undivided attention, your dad's undivided attention, because there's nothing more important than helping you feel less alone when you feel that bad. And if you think you're being a burden, if you open up to us, you're being giving us a gift. All right. Excellent uh, advice. Dr. Mark Golson there, retired psychiatrist. Uh, once again, uh, if you are experiencing feelings of uh, that deep darkness that you can get lost in, there is a very easy number to call. He referenced it. I'll tell it to you again. Uh, it's 988. Just dial that number. You can also text that number, 988, if you need help. The Dodgers, they are honoring former pitcher Fernando Valenzuela, retiring his number 34. Fernando Mania took over L.A. in the early 80s when the pitcher began his stellar career, but it never really ended. The cultural and social influence of his career lives on to this day. And with us now to talk about Fernando, it's Fernando. Fernando Guerra, political science and Chicano and Latino studies professor at Loyola Marymount University. Thanks for joining us. Oh, no, absolutely. Any time to talk about the Dodgers and especially Fernando Valenzuela. Now, for somebody like me... Uh, I love there the sport ball. Like you. There's nobody like me. Okay. I love the sport ball. Uh, I'm not well versed in a lot of it, except maybe for a few NFL games that I deign to watch from time to time. Uh, how is Fernando Mania and Fernando Valenzuela in his career? What influence do I feel from that as someone who is not a diehard baseball fan? It is the amazing incorporation of Latinos, not into not only into baseball and professional baseball, but in terms of the fan base. Uh, Latinos in the early 80s were about one third of the population in Los Angeles County. Now they're about half. 
And typically, you see the demographic shift, meaning the increasing population, then political incorporation, then economic incorporation, and then social incorporation, meaning movie stars, uh, social stars, which is what sports are. Uh, Fernando Valenzuela jump-started that. In terms of politics, there was not a single Latino city council member. There was only one member of Congress in entire California. Now there's 17. So you could see how important he was as a symbol of the presence of Latinos in Los Angeles. And not only that, there was a little bit of hesitation, including my father, who refused to go to Dodger Stadium because it was taken away from uh, its original name, Chavez Ravine, from Latino families. He allowed and gave a reason for Latinos to go to Dodger Stadium. And now you go to a typical Dodger game, more than half the fans are Latinos. And, you know, in that famous 1981 Dodger team, there was Fernando Pedro Guerrero, who ended up being MVP of the World Series, but also Bobby Babo Castillo, who was a U.S. born from East L.A. pitcher, who taught Fernando the screwball that made him famous. Those three really uh, enhanced the Latino experience. And now you have J.D. Martinez, Urias, Hernandez, Rojas, Peralta, Rosario, you can keep going on. It's really changed baseball, and Fernando is the, the face of that. And what would you tell, say, a, a, a young uh, Latino who is not maybe familiar with some of the things that you've just ticked off and maybe even a little bit puzzled by the sort of, you know, the hoopla? What would you tell them? You're, you're used to Latinos being around. You're used to Latinos being in positions of power economically, politically, socially in Los Angeles. We were not. I was uh, in my early 20s when it, that happened. The 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 how proud El Orgullo that I had of someone who looked like me and had the same name, by the way, was the envy and the star that everybody in Los Angeles loved. Everybody was so focused on him and he took Los Angeles to the World Series. That was the amazing part. I do have to criticize the Dodgers a little bit. They don't retire a number unless you're a member of the Hall of Fame. Believe it or not, Fernando Valenzuela is not in the Hall of Fame. But we shouldn't let a national organization looking at nationally really determine what locally is important to us, locally how we define fame in Los Angeles. And Fernando is the epitome of the Hall of Fame for Los Angeles. And that's why I think his number deserves to be retired. You know, you pointed up something there that I was going to ask you about, uh, the fact that, uh, okay, not in the Hall of Fame, but does that maybe represent some, some people that the Hall of Fame should not be the end-all, be-all of who gets honored in baseball? That, that's absolutely right. The Hall of Fame is still determined oftentimes by numbers, metrics, and that is baseball. You have to love baseball for the stats, et cetera, and all that. But there's something, sometimes something that supersedes that, that is greater than the numbers, that it means something significant to baseball. And that's what Fernando Valenzuela was. And I think he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame for what he did for the Latino base. Listen, the Dodgers draw more people to their stadium than anybody else for the last 10, 15, 20 years. We are the greatest fan base in the entire baseball community. And it's Latinos who drive that. And it's because of Fernando Valenzuela who started that. If that isn't a Hall of Fame person, I don't know what is. All right. Fernando Guerra, thanks so much. Political science and Chicano and Latino studies professor at Loyola Marymount University. Well, we've reached the end of another week. Yes, we have. And we, we ended it being, we were both diplomatic. Yes. We, we were charming. We held ourselves back from we time to time. We held ourselves back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what, what more could we say? Not much. Because we're no. out of time. No, we're out of time. <laughs> so uh, that's it for In-Depth for this week. We'll be back Monday at 1 p.m. Have a good weekend.